Welcome to today's Triple Z. The Triple Z podcast is a daily program that you can use to help you fall asleep each night. Just turn down the volume, lay back, relax, and enjoy as you fall asleep. We are reading the first three chapters of the book, Seven Years in Vienna. The author is unknown, but it was published by the Boston and New York Houghton Mifflin Company in 1917. This book covers the seven years before World War I, from 1907 to 1914. The author lived in Vienna for seven years and gives their insight about King Edward, the Emperor's illness, and the Archduke Francis Ferdinand. If you pick up a copy of the rest of the book, you will find some insights into the reasons that World War I began. If you enjoy our program, please be sure to write us a review on your podcast platform and share us with a friend. You both might sleep just a little better at night. Our website is triple Z, that's three Z's dot media. You can also like and share our content on Facebook or our Instagram account ZZZ underscore media underscore podcast. Music for today's episode was provided by the Sleep Channel on Spotify. Seven Years in Vienna Chapter 1 King Edward at Ischl, The Parting of the Ways It was mid-August in 1907. King Edward of England, who had been undergoing a cure at Marienbad, was expected at Ischl, where the Austrian court was in residence. The whole place was hung with flags that were put up at the last moment as the gem of the Salzkammergut as Ischl is often called, is one of the wettest spots in the country. The local trains brought large numbers of peasants in their picturesque costume who wanted to take advantage of the opportunity of seeing the King of England. Other peasants, in badly fitting costumes, also came down in the Vienna Night Express. Their white knees, left bare beneath the short leather breeches, plainly showed that they were not accustomed to wearing the Styrian costume. The peasant girls eyed them dubiously, one suggested that a little walnut juice would improve matters while their little brothers whispered police. The real peasants crowded around the station and watched the red carpet being laid, ready for royalty. They then turned to see Emperor Francis Joseph drive up to the gates. He arrived 20 minutes before the train was expected, as usual, for being a great stickler for etiquette he always feared that some accident or contretemps might delay him and the visitor reached the station before the host. He dreaded nothing so much as a breach of etiquette or good manners and was willing to take any trouble to avoid even the possibility of such a thing. The train from Marienbad steamed into the station, the monarchs embraced, their intercourse had always been most cordial. The king respected the simple old man who had until then guided the destinies of his country with great astuteness while the Emperor of Austria esteemed the statesman for in Austria-Hungary and the Balkans King Edward was reckoned as the most skillful diplomatist of his time. As the imperial carriage with the gilt wheels drove through the streets, the people cheered heartily. King Edward was the most popular of foreign monarchs in Austria and the minimum of precautions were taken for his safety. In spite of this, the Austrian police, ever watchful, 
took stock of every fresh arrival in the place for days before the king appeared. On the morning of the visit, they ascertained what persons would be seated in windows commanding the line of route and carefully watched the houses that might harbor anarchists or other assassins. The uninitiated suspected nothing of all this. The long line of firemen that lined the streets looked like members of the local brigade. It was not suspected that they were specially trained men who knew how to act and to cooperate at the right moment with the peasants, also members of the same highly organized force. They all stood apparently careless and inattentive. Presently a carriage, in which a spare, tall, pockmarked man was seated, drove through the street. He was the emperor's private detective. His appearance always heralded that of the monarchs and the firemen braced themselves for a combined movement either to the right or left, forwards or backwards, as previously arranged. The police behind helped with the work, and just as the imperial carriage flashed by, everyone in the crowd pushed forward, sideways, or backwards, as though by accident. Any intending assassin would have lost his place at the front and have missed the golden opportunity through this clever maneuver of the police. These precautions were always taken for every royal visitor, for although Emperor Francis Joseph himself was accustomed to stroll about the Ischel Woods and went hunting in the forests quite unattended, he took care that his guests were exposed to no risks. Everything went off as arranged, although there was a strained feeling in the air, partly due to the thundery weather. It was known, too, that King Edward was on a diplomatic tour throughout Europe and the people knew that meetings of monarchs in summer are often of great importance even when they are unaccompanied by their ministers. Emperor Francis Joseph is practically a despotic monarch, for the Austro-Hungarian constitution exists merely on paper. He alone decides the foreign policy of the country and determines whether there shall be peace or war. Thus he is in a position to make decisions for his country without consulting his ministers. Austria-Hungary had long been quiet, almost to the point of stagnation. Her statesmen had been fully occupied in paying off the burdens incurred during the last war and were now delighted that, after a succession of deficits, they could at length turn out budgets with surpluses at the end of the financial year. There was trouble with Serbia, it is true, Austrian machinations had deprived Serbia of an outlet to the sea. Serbia, being a pastoral and agricultural country, wished to sell her products, and Austria, the natural market, was close to her. The Austrians, who were very short of meat, promised to take over Serbian meat, but the Hungarian agrarians, or large landowners, who wanted to keep up the prices of their own products, managed to prevent this. They appointed veterinary surgeons to examine imported meat, and by unjustly condemning the Serbian meat at the frontier, they succeeded in preventing its import. This line of conduct caused much greater discontent among the Serbs than a downright refusal to admit their products would have done. They naturally objected to being cheated by their powerful and unscrupulous neighbors, and the friction caused by the Serbian pig question was continual. Otherwise, the Balkans were strangely, almost uncannily, quiet. 
There were no massacres to report, no bands who roamed the country and committed depredations. It seemed that the two monarchs could have nothing to discuss. As the Emperor brought the King back to the Hotel Elizabeth in the afternoon, the faces of both monarchs could be seen very plainly in the blaze of the sun that was pouring down with great fierceness. Emperor Francis Joseph looked much older than he had done that morning. His face was drawn, the fine lines on the parchment-like skin were deepened. It did not need any unusual acuteness to see that something had gone wrong. King Edward walked up to his suite of rooms with something weary in his step. The Emperor, freed from the restraint of the King's presence, returned to the Imperial Villa, his slight frame shrunk into half its usual size, his soldierly bearing gone. Alicia went home to dress for the gala performance at the tiny court theatre. It was always difficult to get tickets at the Bijou Theatre when members of the Imperial family were expected. On the night of King Edward's visit, it was impossible to obtain them. The police excluded all foreigners by careful manipulation. By evening, it was already known initially that the Emperor and the King had quarreled violently. Attendants, posted behind doors, ready to spring to attention, overhear many things. They could give no details of what the subject under discussion had been, but they said that Emperor Francis Joseph had lost his temper in the presence of a foreign king, and although outbursts of this kind were common enough within the family, it was an unprecedented thing in the presence of a stranger. They knew that the occasion had been no ordinary one, and that the future policy of the country had been under consideration. Just as the curtain went up for the performance of some light musical comedy, the sort of play that is at its very best in Vienna, the thunderstorm that had been threatening all day long, broke outside. The rain rattled down on the roof of the theater. The real heroine of the piece, who had been brought down from the capital on purpose, was a dazzlingly beautiful woman, she laughed danced, and pirouetted all over the stage. She was the very embodiment of Vienna cheek. Just at the end of the first act, royalty never sees a piece through when on state visits, she abruptly turned her back towards the imperial box. She was lightly clad, even for the Austrian stage, as she tripped laughingly to the front and carried out her instructions. A thrill went through the audience. Would the king understand? His British phlegm stood him in good stead. He remained in his seat, although he was sufficiently acquainted with Austrian manners and customs to comprehend the somewhat heavy witticism. Only when the curtain fell did he rise and leave the theater. What was the meaning of the insult? asked Alishal. What did it portend? They learned the answer just seven years later to the very day. The people about the palace discussed the incident at the theater. They understood that it was meant as a hint to the king that his presence in Austria was not desired if he came to discuss politics. As a private friend and a brother monarch, he was always welcome. He had attempted to show the emperor that the close alliance with Germany was not for the good of Europe. 
Not merely that, but Austria-Hungary herself would imperil her existence as a great power if she allowed herself to become merged in Germany. The aged emperor, who had long been accustomed to depend upon Germany for assistance against the Slavs, would not listen to the king. He was perhaps aware that his policy was wrong, but being obstinate, like all the Habsburgs, he would not acknowledge it. He did not intend to alter his policy at the eleventh hour, in any case. If there must be a change, let his successor see to it. King Edward made due allowance for the Emperor's age, but it is doubtful whether he ever again made any direct effort to turn Austria from her fatal path. She stood at the parting of the ways. Her Emperor chose her destiny that summer day initial. Diplomatists and ambassadors took up the king's task, they repeatedly pointed out the disastrous consequences of the close alliance with Germany. Instead of discussing the situation with Italy, Austria-Hungary informed Germany of what was happening. Instead of keeping the balance equal between Italy and Germany, Austria-Hungary really concluded a partnership with Germany, the Triple Alliance degenerated into a dual alliance that kept up an understanding with the third partner. Italy was quick to realize this. So long as Russia and France were allied and occupied a position that was a set-off to that held by Germany and an Austria that had not given up her liberty of action, European peace was assured. Great Britain and Italy were not bound to their allies to any great extent. The result of the meeting at Ischl soon made itself felt. Italian diplomatists began to back out of their obligations towards Germany and Austria-Hungary. Their policy of cooling down, at first barely perceptible, took form somewhat later at the renewal of the Triple Alliance when Italy promised very little in return for the many benefits heaped upon her by Germany. Great Britain, aware of the danger of the center of the European chessboard being occupied by one vast state, stretching from the North Sea and Baltic to the Adriatic, was more inclined to listen to advances from France and Russia and to deliberate upon the advantages of a closer contact with Germany's enemies. The suggestion made by France that Great Britain should introduce conscription prevented the understanding becoming anything more. France pointed out the necessity of preparing for an aggressive move on the part of Germany, but Great Britain would not even consider a proposition so far from her theories of government as was conscription. Chapter 2 The Emperor's Illness The Austrian court returned to Vienna as soon as the first snows on the mountains round Isch gave warning that the summer season was at an end. Emperor Francis Joseph, who is a strenuous worker, and carries on the business of state daily, whether in residence in Vienna or in the country, began his life as usual. On certain days of the week he held general audiences and received anyone, high or low, aristocrat or peasant, who wished to present a petition. He was always up at 4 a.m. and had got through most of his state duties by 8 a.m. when he began to receive ministers and others. In the month of October, it was suddenly announced that the emperor was ill. The news caused great consternation as the monarch had never been ill in his life. He had been confined to his room for some time as a young man after an attempt made on his life 
when he was stabbed in the neck, but he had never had the slightest ailment since. His life was carefully regulated by the court physician, Dr. Kurzel, a military surgeon, a rough doctor of the old school who had grown old with the emperor. Members of the imperial family frequently tried to have a younger and more up-to-date man appointed as court physician. They considered that the emperor's health was so precious that its care ought not to be confided to a man who had gained his experience with the army. The emperor, however, stood firm and the results of the somewhat draconic treatment have certainly justified his decision. The emperor sleeps on a camp bed, eats the heavy Vienna food with relish, and is always accustomed to drive in an open carriage without his military cloak. It is probable that he took the chill during the drive. Specialists were summoned to the emperor's bedside and they found that the royal patient was suffering from inflammation of the lungs. He, however, refused to go to bed. Crowds of people went out to the summer palace of Schönbrunn where he was staying and waited under his window until he appeared to reassure them when cheers rang out and echoed along the arched corridors beneath the palace. The anxiety felt by the common people was shared by everyone in Austria-Hungary and the one hope of high and low was that the emperor might live. This was not so much on account of his personal popularity, although this was great, as because of the dread of the future. The heir to the throne, Archduke Francis Ferdinand, was the most hated man in Austria-Hungary. The emperor's death meant that he would succeed to the throne. The emperor himself felt a profound hatred for his heir and it was a matter of common knowledge that he was filled with a firm determination not only to recover from his illness but to outlive his heir. Day after day the struggle went on within the white walls of Schönbrunn Palace. The daily papers spoke of the emperor's illness as a slight cold for the monarch was not satisfied with reading extracts from the official organs as was his ordinary custom but insisted upon having all the papers, opposition organs as well as bounty-fed periodicals brought to his room. He wished to find out whether the doctors were telling the truth about his illness. The three specialists came to the conclusion that he could not recover. Dr. Kurzel alone stood firm and said that he would get well again. The emperor refused to take to his bed, having a superstitious horror of lying down in the daytime. Kurzel supported him in this, and it is probable that he owed his recovery to it. The disputes among the doctors were unseemly, and the specialists insisted on calling the family to Vienna. Archduchess Gisela, the emperor's elder daughter, arrived in great haste, and his younger daughter, Valerie, also appeared on the scene. Both women are very pious, and they immediately wished the emperor to receive extreme unction. The Archbishop of Vienna, with a retinue of priests, actually came out to Schönbrunn to administer it, but they were met downstairs by Frau Katharina Schrott, who told them that it would frighten him to death and induce them to return without carrying out their mission. Archduke Francis Ferdinand arrived at the capital. He and his morganatic wife, Duchess Hohenberg, established themselves at the Belvedere Palace for the season. The Archduke, a man who lacked refinement and who was utterly devoid of tact immediately began to act as if he had already succeeded to the throne. 
Statesmen, fearing that the emperor would never recover, were afraid to oppose him and he got an insight into affairs of state during the emperor's illness that enabled him to assume a position that he never gave up afterwards. The Habsburgs were obliged to look on while Duchess Hohenberg, then merely Countess Chotek, took a position that would never have been conceded to her had the emperor been in his usual health. Kaiser Wilhelm, ever watchful, began to count on the possibility of the emperor's death and the friendship between him and the archduke dates from this epic. Kaiser Wilhelm did not like the heir to the throne of Austria-Hungary, he recognized the fact that he would have to deal with a determined man who knew exactly what he wanted and would refuse to believe the flattering assurances that satisfied Emperor Francis Joseph, who, although still in full command of his mental faculties, was beginning to feel the weight of years. The Emperor was never so acute a man as his heir, the Archduke, too, had a wife whose intelligence was remarkable. Countess Chotek was ambitious, and her husband was accustomed to following her advice in state affairs. Kaiser Wilhelm therefore shared the wish of the Austrian people that the aged emperor might long be spared to them. Week after week went by. People from all parts of the monarchy sent the emperor quaint remedies, charms, and specifics of all kinds to cure his illness. Several officials were engaged all day in writing to thank the senders, who were not even aware of what ailed the emperor. When it was finally announced that he was out of danger there was great jubilation throughout the realm, the people poured scorn upon the specialists and acclaimed Dr. Kurzel as the savior of the country whenever they could catch sight of his rough, honest face bronzed by exposure upon many a battlefield. The emperor had given his attendants great trouble during his illness and convalescence as he had refused to allow anyone to enter his rooms except Dr. Kurzel, his soldier valet, who slept upon a rug in the antechamber of his bedroom, and the sentry, who always paced to and fro outside the emperor's bedchamber and watched through a spy hole, cunningly made in the door, for any change. No woman was allowed to enter the suite of rooms during the night hours, the patient saying he preferred an orderly to nurse him. Gradually, the emperor recovered his powers. He was never the same man again, his vigor was gone, and, although he was little changed in appearance, his grasp upon affairs had weakened. The archduke, who disliked Vienna cordially, remained in town, a thorn in the emperor's side. The latter, however, could find no pretext for dismissing him to the country. Counselors, already anticipating the probable demise of the reigning monarch at no distant date, advised the emperor to consult with his heir and to try to inculcate the inexperienced man with some of his statecraft. The emperor was induced to bestow some powers upon the archduke, although much against his will, and a new era in the history of the country began. Chapter 3 Archduke Francis Ferdinand All Europe was asking one and the same question at this epoch, what kind of a man is the heir to the throne? They got the answer that he was a little-known man, and this was true to a certain extent. The emperor, an old autocrat, never allowed any member of the imperial family to take a leading part in public affairs. 
They were expected to do their duty in opening charitable institutions, presiding at fates in provincial cities, but in both Vienna and Budapest, they found it advisable to keep well in the background. Whenever a young archduke became too popular, even in the ballrooms of Vienna, he was promptly banished to some out-of-the-way place, ostensibly on a mission, but really as a punishment for presuming to court popularity. This was well understood among the Habsburgs, who, as a rule, did not care for court life. Most of the Archdukes lived on their country estates, where they enjoyed almost regal power for nine months of the year, merely coming to court to pay their respects to the monarch at the new year. Archduke Francis Ferdinand was very fond of power and very ambitious, but he did not care for playing the role of heir to the throne when he had reached middle age and was at the height of his powers. He therefore remained in the country for the greater part of the year. This did not increase his popularity. People grumbled at the sadness that hung like a pall over the court. They said that it was merely a resort for military men and officials and wished that young life could be introduced to restore Vienna and Budapest to their former gaiety. Archduke Francis Ferdinand had labored under great disadvantages since sudden and unexpected events had made him heir to the throne. His attendants and the court officials summed up the position in one sentence, he has never been trained for a throne. He was entirely lacking in tact, a quality which, if not a natural gift, must be acquired by painful experience by personages who will one day occupy a throne. He spoke no languages except his own. He had, of course, some knowledge of French and Italian and was learning Hungarian but he was not in a position to carry on delicate negotiations in French. He had a bad record even for an Austrian Archduke. His youthful career had been full of incident and his doctors had been compelled to put a sudden stop to a course of youthful dissipation by sending him on a voyage around the world. He was reported to be suffering from consumption in its preliminary stages and it was said his only chance of life was a complete change of climate. The Archduke, who was an artist and well acquainted with ancient and modern culture, started off on the imperial yacht for the East with nothing but pleasurable feelings. His favorite study was ethnology, and he made a collection of objects of great interest during this voyage. They were to be seen in one of the galleries of the Hofburg, which had recently been added to the main block of the town palace. The Archduke converted the new part into a museum as the Emperor had forbidden the architect to fit the new building with lifts or other modern appliances. Lifts he hated and firmly refused to enter one even when he was having his portrait painted by an artist whose studio was on the sixth floor of a Vienna house. The Archduke who was intensely modern, decided that a palace without lifts and proper heating appliances was not fit to live in and promptly converted the new gallery into a picture gallery and museum without waiting for the emperor's advice or permission. The aged emperor and his heir clashed in every direction, they were diametrically opposed in all their tastes and convictions. Both were pious to an exaggerated degree. The Emperor disliked the Jesuits, his heir consorted with them constantly and listened to their advice in matters of state. 
this alone would have been sufficient to prevent the Emperor from ever wishing him to succeed to the throne. The Archduke, too, although so pious, had contrived to estrange both the Church and the Emperor by one act of boyish folly. As a young officer he was stationed at a depot in the depths of the country to learn his profession far from critical crowds. One day he was riding across the fields when some peasants, carrying the mortal remains of one of their fellows, crossed by the footpath. The Archduke, in a fit of youthful exuberance, set his horse at the bier and cleared it at a jump. The priest protested at the act of sacrilege. The story reached the ears of the Emperor, who never forgave him. Although the Archduke was not careful of the feelings of the Roman Catholics, the non-Catholics in the country believed that he would be capable of persecuting them with a rigor such as had been unknown since the Middle Ages. At the time of the Emperor's illness, the liberal papers prophesied in their leading articles that he would build up martyr fires around the Cathedral of St. Stephen in the center of Vienna. They said he would show the utmost relentlessness in burning or hanging his Jewish, Protestant, and Mohammedan subjects, all of whom were accustomed to a wide tolerance, based on indifference to them and their doings. The Archduke was bitterly hated in Hungary. It was commonly reported that his life was not safe in that part of his future kingdom. He gave color to these reports by his strange conduct. When he went down to Budapest, he did not put up at an hotel, as was customary. He remained all night in the royal train, which was run up the line to a siding, no one being aware of the exact spot at which it had drawn up. This confession of fear and lack of confidence in the loyalty of his subjects did the Archduke great harm. The alternative explanation sometimes advanced that the Archduke, who was known as the meanest man in the kingdom, merely wished to save an hotel bill, did not improve matters. The hotel keepers looked upon members of the imperial house as most desirable guests. They never overcharged them, for the advertisement was worth a great deal to them. Archdukes who neither commanded a palace to be prepared for their coming nor put up at an hotel were naturally not popular with anyone. Archduke Francis Ferdinand crowned all his other delinquencies by his marriage. Instead of contracting an alliance with some powerful reigning house, he made a morganatic marriage with a lady-in-waiting. Countess Chotek was a bohemian aristocrat, it is true, but she was not a peer of any member of the House of Habsburg. The Emperor allowed the marriage to take place, and when all the circumstances are taken into account, especially the ease with which persons whose existence was disagreeable to the Vienna court were removed, it can only be concluded that the Emperor approved of the marriage. He evidently did not wish the children of the Archduke to come to the throne on account of their father's tendency to tuberculosis, which was reported to have gone to the brain. It was common knowledge that the Archduke was accustomed to fly into fearful rages. Whether this habit, which is common to all the Habsburgs, was owing to epilepsy or some obscure brain disease, it is difficult to say, but the Emperor evidently shared the common feeling that it was some obscure affection of the brain and shared the doctor's opinion that the Archduke's descendants ought not to come to the throne of Austria-Hungary. Archduke Francis Ferdinand, who was always short of money, tried to engage in business 
and, as usually happens with men of his position, made a sad failure of it. Instead of leaving the management of his estates to stewards, who would only take their customary perquisites, he engaged in business transactions himself. He was badly swindled and gained a reputation for meanness which was richly deserved. His varied excursions into the realms of speculative business were attended by no better luck. He dared not associate himself with eminent businessmen, so he summoned a number of companions to his side who were difficult to shake off. With them, he embarked upon business of an illegitimate kind. His only excuse was his complete lack of understanding of all matters relating to business. Neither Archduke Francis Ferdinand nor his morganatic wife had the tact or sense to hide the impatience with which they awaited the aged emperor's death. The parrot story, as it was called, went the round of the Vienna cafes at this period. A bird of very rare plumage, evidently the property of some aristocratic personage, was found straying in the public gardens of Vienna. A gardener promptly caught it and took it round to the police where lost property of all kinds was deposited until its owner could be found. The sergeant in charge put the bird in a cage and forgot all about it. Shortly afterwards, he was startled to hear the parrot begin to discourse with great fluency when it had become used to its surroundings. It referred to various members of the imperial family in terms of the very scantiest respect. That old cat Valerie was its delicate way of referring to the emperor's younger and favorite daughter. Peacocks, sluts, were terms of abuse applied to archduchesses who either overdressed or neglected their toilets. The sergeant became pale with fright. It was lace majest to listen to such words, and the penalty might be death. When the parrot broke into a steady stream of talk, with a kind of refrain, he'll live to be a hundred, Sophie, in an exact imitation of the gruff tones of the heir to the throne, who was evidently referring to the emperor, the sergeant felt that any further eavesdropping would be dangerous. He picked up a cloth, threw it over this utterer of high treason, and carried the loquacious bird to the chief of the police. The cloth was removed, and the indignant parrot, and used to such treatment, began worse than before. The sergeant was dispatched in all haste to find a very thick black cloth that might be calculated to damp even the ardor of an imperial parrot, and, carefully wrapped up, the bird was sent to the Belvedere, where the archduke and his wife were in residence.